about Victory Church, then take one of our brochures from the connection desk, or you can always check us out online at www.victorywired.com and be sure to like our Facebook page. Now, please welcome Pastor Michael as we get ready for another great message from the series, David, Poet, Warrior, King. Good morning. Are you blessed today? Say amen. amen. So glad to be with you today. If you're our first time guest, we welcome you. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory. Today we are uh, in number six, actually in the second series. This is Poet Warrior King 2. Uh, we're in the sixth installment. Next Sunday I will finish this, this particular series, this round, and then we'll go back and do the third one in the fall. Uh, a total of about 20 three or 24 messages all about the life of David. So they continue to build and get exciting based on what the Lord's doing in his life. Um, <clears throat> Memorial Day, we'll have one service as the announcer shared, 10 a.m. So we're ex excited to see you that day. And then we'll have hot dogs and hamburgers following. So a great time of fellowship. Also, I just want to say something very special. We really are throwing this open this time around. Uh, Leadership Summit is not just for serve team leaders or those in leadership capacity. We really want to invite everybody because Pastor Chip Bueller is going to be speaking about territorial commitment. And that is when God sends a people to an area, raises up a local church, and they are there for the specific prophetic purpose of seeing walls break, of seeing bondages literally crumble, of seeing breakthroughs take place, and then revival penetrate an area. And that's why we've been here these years to see the delta bow its knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so there's some tremendous prophetic ministry that he's going to be giving us, teaching us from the Word uh, in the Leadership Summit on Friday night. I believe it's at 6.30. And then Saturday morning at 9 with breakfast provided for everyone who will come and be a part of that with us. We'll be finished by noon, so you'll have the whole day. And then he'll be preaching Sunday morning in both services as well. Uh, Abby is going to be with us that Sunday leading worship. Uh, so we're excited to have her. Uh, she's been doing a lot of touring around. Matter of fact, flying to New York City this week and just expect... I'll, I'm not going to say anything until we see some things happen. Uh, we're not counting chickens before the eggs hatch, but there's some amazing, amazing, amazing opportunities the Lord is bringing her way that we're excited about. So this morning, uh, first of all, I just want to say happy birthday to you. Did you know it was your birthday? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Today is Pentecost Sunday. So that, the Pentecost Sunday was the birthday of the church. Did you not know that? So a little under 2,000 years ago on Pentecost Sunday when Peter stood up and preached the gospel like a man possessed. Let me just sort of set this up prior to that happening. 50 days prior to that, it was the fateful event where they thought everything had ended. And that was the hope uh, temporarily dashed and the one that they had hoped would be the Messiah, Jesus goes to the cross and dies. And so for that period of darkness from Friday until Sunday morning, on the third day he arose and having conquered death and sin and hell and the curse and everything and took the keys back from, from the enemy, Jesus had arisen. And so the next 40 days are crazy around Jerusalem because everyone is excited that this one who died now is alive. And he was seen literally by multitudes, as the New Testament records. And for that 40 days, he's showing them by infallible proofs. The first chapter of the book of Acts says, things concerning the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God is right here 
within grasp. It has now begun. It has been inaugurated because of the, the death of Jesus that paid the penalty for our sins and his resurrection which had now broken the power of sin over us and his life. We live and now are saved by his life. And so because of that, Jesus instructs these faithful disciples. The church is not yet born, but he instructs the faithful disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes. He says in Luke 24, until you be endued with power from on high. Endued means to put on garments. So it literally means that you're going to be engarbed. You're going to be wrapped up in the power and the presence of God in a new way like you've never known before. And so they start what becomes a 10-day prayer meeting. A few of the faithful disciples after Jesus all of a sudden one day is taken up into the clouds and angels appear and they say, why do you stand here gazing upward? They said, this same Jesus whom you've seen taken away will in like manner come again. And that's when they immediately went into prayer. They began to seek the Lord, stayed in Jerusalem, waiting for the promise of the Father. And the prayer meeting that day turned into an all-night thing and people are crying out to God saying, Lord, send your power, send your Holy Spirit upon us. And two days became five, became seven, became nine, became ten. And on the tenth day, the morning of that tenth day, about nine o'clock in the morning, the time of the first sacrifice, 9 a.m., all of a sudden, a rushing mighty wind comes blowing through that upper room where 120 people are gathered all in one accord, in unity, seeking the face of God. The Bible says a rushing mighty wind comes through the room and tongues of fire, visible signs of the fire of God set down on the heads of each of these people like the whole room is on fire. And they all begin to speak in languages that they had never learned before. And the uproar of it is so great that people gather outside around the city and a crowd is gathered and people from all different regions around the known world, which to this time was the whole Mediterranean basin. So everybody's gathered because it's a holy day. It is the day of Pentecost. It's the second holy season that God has inaugurated in Israel. The first one being Passover that had just happened 50 days previous. Jesus had become once and for all the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. All of the lambs and bulls and goats and, and doves that had been killed and throats slit and blood spilled, bloodshed, all of that had never done anything but just rolled over the sin another year, covered, atoned for. It had just sort of covered over the sin. But Jesus finally became the Lamb of God who took away. Everybody say took away took away the sins of the world. And that happened. He, he fulfilled that promise that they had seen, acted out, multiplied hundreds of thousands of times for 2,000 years since they had been, been delivered by the blood, the water, and spirit under the leadership of a guy by the name of Moses when he delivered them as Israelite slaves out of Egypt and a nation was born. Fifty days later, they're in the wilderness and they're gathered at Sinai and God gives the law... Uh, of Moses to the people of God. Two tablets. Four commandments that deal with our relationship to God. Six commandments that deal with our relationships to each other. You see the bars of the cross. Our upward reach to God. Our outward reach to humanity. Those six command, commandments to my brothers and sisters. Those four upward to God. Those ten total are summed up in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. When I learn to walk in love, all of those commandments in that big ten are all summed up and fulfilled in that one word love. 
Because if I love God, I won't break any of those four. If I love my brothers and sisters, my neighbors as myself, I won't break any of that last six. Are you following me this morning? So 50 days after the very first Passover that happened in Israel, I mean, sorry, that happened in Egypt, God takes them into the wilderness and it's there where a nation is born. They see their constitution. They have the laws by which God is going to govern them as a nation of people. There God wanted to literally make them a whole kingdom of priests to all the other nations of the world, but they backed up and basically said, no, we don't want that. We're scared. God was throwing them a great big Independence Day, what we would call July 4th as Americans. A big, huge Independence Day celebration, fireworks, uh, all kinds of, uh, the, 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 the mountain is bellowing smoke and fire and basically they see it as fear and terror and they step back and go, we can't do this. God speaks through Moses and he says, that's fine. I will take one tribe out of these 12 and cause them to be a priestly tribe to the rest of this nation. So God starts moving then and then that, that occurrence, that event that took place on that very first Pentecost Penta meaning 50, Penta 5, you see like a, a, a pentagram or the pentagon is a five-sided figure. Pentecost means 50 days after Passover. So now we have the very first feast that's taking place in Israel and that's where God gave the law. 2,000 years later, we come down this timeline and we see that all of those lambs are slain and the final fulfillment in Jesus so now we're going to see something that's going to take place that will give us the real meaning of what Pentecost has been celebrated for these 2,000 years. What happens this time when the Spirit of God is poured out upon the people on the day that the church is born, on the birthday of the church, this time instead of handing them tablets of stone with the law of God written on the stone, the Holy Spirit comes in and makes the people themselves become the temple of God and God writes the law on the fleshly tables of new hearts that have been regenerated by the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. So the Bible says He gave us a new heart and He wrote His laws upon our hearts. It's not about a stone tablet any longer and laws that absolutely have we have no ability whatsoever to keep but now it's by grace and love that motivates us to love God with all of our hearts and love people as we love our neighbors as ourselves are you are you following me this morning so a little under 2000 years ago around 1985 1986 1985 or 6 years ago we have the very first day of pentecost in the beginning of the new covenant and the new israel of god is born that's not just the Jewish people, but it's to whosoever will may come. It's not about a natural birth any longer, but it's about a spiritual birth in Christ. Somebody say amen. Now this morning, that's not my subject, but it directly relates to my subject. And you will see as we jump into this passage of Scripture. My text this morning, is this is called a glimpse into the New Testament. Now we're still in the administration of David, King David. Everybody say King David. King David is the greatest picture or the type uh, of an Old Testament person who shows us Jesus, the Messiah, who is coming. David is like a sign. He is not what the sign is advertising. Um, you can go out here on the interstate and you can see a sign to Cracker Barrel. But you don't go drive up under the sign and place your order and wait for your countrified steak and your greens and your hash brown casserole, I'm getting hungry now. Uh, you don't go put in your order under the sign. The sign tells you about where the, the real thing is. 
the, the sign is the type, the substance is the restaurant. Okay, the sign is the, the type, the, the, the truth is when you get to the place that the sign is pointing to. So David is a sign. He's not Jesus, but he's pointing to. His life gives us a prophetic picture of this one who is to come. And so when Jesus shows up, he's the cracker barrel that you pull into and place your order and you get fed and ministered to. Okay, And so David is going to give us not only a picture of Jesus who is coming, because usually anybody with a regenerated heart and maybe a little bit of Bible teaching can see Christ all over the Old Testament. And once you do, it becomes a new book. 2 Corinthians 3, the scripture says to the Apostle Paul that uh, until they come to Christ, when they read Moses, there's a veil, a veil of lack of understanding. But when they come to Christ, the veil is removed. And so when you look at the Old Testament now, because Christ is in your heart, the veil that has hidden all of the fulfillment of these pictures that have been there over and over and over through the law, through the Psalms, through the prophets, all of a sudden become very manifest and you can see them and it's evident. But it's easy to see Christ. Sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to see the church in the Old Testament. And you might need a little bit of help to be able to identify that. You cannot have Christ without His church. Because the eternal purpose of God in Christ is the church. Ephesians chapter 3 says, To Him be glory forever, world without end. That is in the church. That God would glorify Himself through a people called the church of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. So when you see Jesus, you have His church. You have husband and bride. Bride of Christ, the church, the body of Christ, church of Jesus Christ. So I want you to see that when we look at this this morning, we're not only going to see David who represents Jesus, but we're also going to see a representation of the church, which is coming, okay? So a glimpse into the New Testament. If you would stand with me, please. One verse of Scripture I want you to read. Find a comfortable place. Read out loud with me. Here we go. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside. What is that? The special tent. David had what? Prepared for it. Read on. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning. As we come before your presence, thank you for the words that we sang today that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, there's liberty. Where the Spirit is Lord. So today we would just say, Spirit of God, be Lord, be King, be ruler, be governor in our lives, be the boss, call the shots. Lead us in this service. God, I pray that you would open hearts that know persuasive rhetoric or the convincing words of any man could ever do, but only the Holy Spirit can do that. Penetrate hardness, light up darkness. Lord, trans transform bitterness into sweetness. God, the struggles that people have in this room, you know them and it's not important that anybody else knows about them, but you do. And because you do, we know that you are greater than they are. You're the God of all flesh and nothing is too difficult for you. You made every need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I need you. I need you. Lord, and even those words have come alive in my own heart this last week uh, in a new and a fresh way. God, I'm hungry for you. And even as you said in, in the constitution of the kingdom of God, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. God, I pray today for a spirit of hunger in this room. Make us hungry for your presence. Make us thirsty, Lord, for your word. Lord, let, let us be like a sponge just to soak up everything that we can grasp. Let our faith be stronger, Lord, because you, you're going to lead us in place, places that our feet could never wander before. 
When oceans rise, O God, we thank you for your embrace, for grace and for faith. We'll be careful to give you the praise. It's in Jesus' name that we speak this and all of God's people said. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. One thing that I want you to grasp, one thing in this message today, say it with me. The ark of God is the presence and the glory of God. Say it again. The ark of God is the presence and the glory of God. Two weeks ago, my pastor, Ray McCollum, did an absolutely indescribably fantastic job of bringing the ark back. David, after his third anointing, first time he was 17, anointed only among his fellows, received the oil of gladness, the scripture says, among his fellows and the Psalms. Samuel shows up at his house and anoints him to be the future king of Israel. He runs for 13 years away from Saul. Second time he's anointed are when the men of Judah realize who he is and they recognize him as king and they realize it by making him king and they lay hands on him and pour oil over his head and say, Lord save his anointed, the anointed king of Judah. Seven and a half years later, it's now come time and he's become the king of Israel finally. And everything that he's lived for to that moment has prepared him for this moment. And the first thing that he does once he's made king is he makes the decision. We read it today. Let's send out an invitation, get a hold of all the priests, all the elders all over Israel, because it's time to bring the ark of God back. And so the question is begged here this morning. Pastor Ray's already preached bringing it back, and we talked about David's mistake on a new cart, how he didn't seek the due order. Everybody say due order. The due order of God, and that it was supposed to be born upon the shoulders of priests, presence of God, weight of God to be upon those who are anointed to do it and carry it. And so he, he endures the, the tragedy of Uzzah dying because the ark basically is shaken a little bit at the threshing floor. And Uzzah reaches out because of his familiarity with the ark. He's one of the sons of Abinadab because the ark has been gone for about a hundred years. The crazy thing is, is that it basically had been neglected for some period of time. This is what I want you to see this morning as I jump into my very first point. Number one, it's been gone for a hundred years. First Chronicles chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, reading from the New Living Translation. It says, David consulted with all his officials, including the generals and captains of his army. Then he ad addressed the entire assembly of Israel as follows. If you approve, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send messages to the, all the Israelites throughout the land, including the priests and the Levites in their towns and pasture lands. Let us invite them to come and join us. Verse 3, read it out loud with me. It is time to bring back the ark of our God, for we neglected it during the reign of Saul. This is what I, 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 I just can't get my, my mind around. I can't get it wrapped around this. That for nearly a hundred years, and it actually happened about 1 Samuel chapter 3 or 4 when the Philistines attacked Israel. Eli was an unfaithful priest who had not trained his sons the way he should have. And they grow up in a privileged uh, sort of power-based type home and because they're sons of the priest then they are fully aware that they're in the course and the line of a dynasty, a priestly dynastic succession basically going to be passed down to them and they're living just like treacherous, uh, dishonest charlatans 
The scripture literally says that they're having sex with prostitutes in the doorway of the tabernacle of the Lord's house. Now, you know, you can watch some of these ungodly preacher shows on TV that we see about the crazy lifestyles of some of these folks and, and how they live and that's between them and the Lord and no names to be mentioned uh, about any of that kind of stuff. But we've seen the, extremity, the extremities of, of sometimes how power and glory and the love for, for money and gold and possessions and all these things can grip the hearts of both spiritual and political leaders and they go crazy and they do outrageous things, unethical and even immoral things, trying to, possess, to protect their positions. The two sons of Eli, they're named Hophni and Phinehas, and, and they, are, they are, let me just tell you what the Bible calls them in Hebrews chapter 12, they are bastards and not sons in the house of the Lord. Now if that's, that's rough for you, I, I, I challenge you to read your own Bible. Some of the newer translations are a little sweeter, they say you're illegitimate and not sons. But these guys are certainly not, they don't have the, the, the work or the Spirit of God moving in their hearts and, and, and they are manipulators, they're deceivers, they're con men, they're charlatans. And um, the Philistines come against the, the children of Israel and they decide because they know the testimony has been that when the ark of God is brought out and it goes into battle, uh, that, that, that every time in the history of Israel that there's always been a great victory, an outrageous routing of the enemy. And so apart from the direction of the Holy Spirit and without the permission of their father, Eli, who is the priest, they go and get the ark of God out of the tabernacle of Moses, which is at Shiloh, and they bring that ark out into the battle. And the crazy thing is, is that instead of God whipping the Philistines, God actually empowers the Philistines to whip the Israelites and He allows the ark of God to be captured by the enemy. Now technically... It looks like from the outside the Philistines have captured the ark, but the truth be told, the ark had captured the Philistines. They take it back home to one of their cities and they set it up in the holy city where the, the temple of Dagon is and the priests go in and they make all their mantras and their chants and they offer their sacrifices and oblations to Dagon, the fish god. Fish of a head, arms and feet of a man. So they're worshiping before this carved idol called Dagon in the temple of Dagon. And the next morning they come back in where the ark of the Lord is sitting in that place, a, a, a sub substandard place. Dagon is higher. They're trying to ba basically make it look like the, 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 the ark of God, the presence of the God of Israel is actually bowing down before the, before Dagon, that's what they were trying to set up to make it look like. But the next morning when they came back in, Dagon had fallen off of his pedestal and he was lying prostrate down before the ark of the Lord. They get upset about it. They set him back up, dust him off, clean him off, sing their songs and their chants and they give their oblations and their offerings. And the next day they come back in. This time Dagon was flat on his face but his head and his hands were broken off. There was no more Dagon. Now what I want you to see, everybody say the ark is Jesus. Say, Dagon is the devil. When Jesus went to hell, it isn't because the devil had captured him. It's because Jesus had actually, he didn't know, the devil didn't know it, but Jesus had captured the devil. He walked down into the corridors of hell, and when Jesus got finished with Dagon, the devil down there in his temple, his head had been cut off and his hands had been cut off and he was bowing before the ark of the Lord. What I want to tell you is that any enemy who thinks he has any strategy over you, Jesus has already cut his head off. Any enemy who tries to manipulate through his, the hands always speak of ministry. 
It speaks of manipulation. That, that whole word comes from how you operate the hand, manipulation. And so the idea is that Jesus comes into, through the ark, and he takes off the head, the strategic thinking and the plans and the schemes against your life by taking off Dagon's head and he cuts off Dagon's hands. And guess what? A, a plague spread throughout all of the land of the Philistines, through Ashdod, through Ekron, through Gath. And I don't want to offend you this morning, but if you read your Bibles, the scripture says a plague of hemorrhoids hit all of that city, all of those cities. There ain't no preparation H enough to fix it when God... <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody. If you'd read your Bibles, you'd get a good laugh once in a while. Because there's stuff in there that would shock the hair off of Granny's back. If Granny has any hair on her back, I don't know where that came from. Uh, but shock, I meant to say the back of her neck. <laughs> they send the ark out on a cart. And basically the ark travels through the whole land of the Philistines and everywhere the ark of God goes, there's a plague that follows that ark. And so finally they get the ark out of, and there's a huge story to tell that I'm not going to take time to tell there, but God actually has the ark leave Philistine country and it lands in the house of Abinadab, which is where Pastor Ray picked up and preached two weeks ago and bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. But the ark's been gone a hundred years. Now this is what I want you to realize. It's been neglected through the whole administration of a king who is self-reliant and independent and doesn't look to God for any strength whatsoever. He, he does everything in his own ability, his own ingenuity, his own power, his own mind. He's not looking to God with any sense of humility or crying out to the Lord for, for, for God's grace or His wisdom to empower him or strengthen him in any kind of way. Saul has done everything he's done for 40 years without the presence and the power of God. Now I want you to think about this. Down at Shiloh is the very last place the cloud of God had appeared and it had stopped and now it had sat there for decades. And then all of a sudden a wicked couple of sons of an unfaithful priest had gone and illegitimately taken it out of the tabernacle of Moses that had followed and led the children of Israel all through the wilderness into the promised land. They're in Canaan now. They're in Israel. They're in the promised land. It had sat there and there had been a faithful priesthood who had been faithful day in, day out, over and over, offering sacrifices on the brazen altar, which speaks of the sacrifice of Christ. They used the brazen laver, which is a place of washing, speaks of baptism. Go into the holy place. There are three sections, an outer court, which the people of Israel, the Jews, could come into the outer court. That's as far as they could go. Okay? And then you had to be born into a special tribe of priests, the Levites, in order to be the Levites, in order to be able to go into the holy place, where you found three pieces of furniture covered with gold, outer courts brass, speaking judgment, furniture made out of wood, humanity, wood speaks of humanity, covered in brass speaks of the judgment of God. But when the blood was shed and it covered the brass, then God doesn't see judgment; He sees the blood, the blood of the innocent animals. Okay. So go into the holy place. We've got three pieces of furniture, a, a golden candlestick, which, which shows us the, 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 the fruit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how they light the path for our journey. And the golden table of showbread where we have fellowship together with the other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. One loaf of bread for every 12, all the 12 tribes laid out there. It's called the bread of presence, the presence of God. You look westbound and you see... The tabernacle, you see the golden altar of incense, which represents the prayers and the praise of the saints of God entering into the presence of God. Then you've got a six-inch thick veil 
that Josephus, the Jewish historian, said it took ten men to hang because it was so heavy. Six inches of woven tapestry with, with woven pictures of the cherubim that are covering over the ark of the Lord. Then you step beyond that six-inch thick veil. Remember that when Jesus died on the cross and he screamed, It is finished. The Bible says the veil in the temple was rent. It was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that it was a work that God had done, not from bottom to top, man being able to wiggle his way in, but from top to bottom, it was a finished work so that that which had never been accessible now was accessible to whosoever will may come. But you go behind that six-inch thick veil and you find yourself in a perfectly square cube Ten feet tall, ten feet deep, ten feet wide. It's a ten feet cubed room and sitting in the very middle, middle or the center of that most holy place on the planet is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Two pieces of furniture together. The Ark itself and then the mercy seat sitting on top of it. The high priest would go in once a year, one time only. It was only one guy who got into that place, into the fullness of of the presence of God. And he went in with a rope tied around his ankle, a fringe of bells and pomegranates on the bottom of the high priest's robe because as long as they knew that the bells were tinkling, they knew he was alive and God hadn't smitten him dead. Amen. He had received, God had accepted the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. Take the mercy seat off, then you have what happens in Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you'll remember when those guys from the Nazi Germany were trying to find the Ark of God so they could capture its power and be able to use the power to win World War II in this fanciful story in Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Harrison Ford story. And when they pulled that Ark off, they saw the contents of the Ark and their, felt, their faces melted off. Three things are in that Ark. Number one, the two tablets of the law because the law accuses. Now in Christ, the law basically gives me a picture of governing and reigning. Also inside that ark was the, was the golden pot of manna which showed us how God had faithfully given the children of Israel breakfast every day. They'd just walk out there and gather it up off the lawn. Give us this day our daily bread. They'd gathered up a golden pot of it and put it down into the treasury, the box part of that ark. But there was also one other thing. There was Aaron's rod that budded which speaks of government. So all of this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus is the ark of God. He is the power and the presence and the glory of God. Everybody say, Jesus is the ark. And so when you take the lid off and you look in the heart of Jesus, you have everything that you need. A rod that will lead you, a law that will govern you, and a pot of manna that is provision that will feed you. Isn't that beautiful? So Jesus is the ark. We want Jesus. We want the presence. We want the power. We want the glory of God. But we want it through Jesus. Because in Jesus, the sacrifice has been made for us. And it's not the anger of God that's poured out, but it's the love and acceptance of God that is poured out. But now think about this with me. For a hundred years, we've had the first church of the Tabernacle of Moses sitting out there at Shiloh. Well-funded, a great priesthood, an amazing serve team, the best looking furniture you can imagine. They've got the finest programs, services that weren't run like clockwork, a serve team that shows up on time, priests, priests that operate in their course. All the stuff to go through the motions. Children of Israel going out there regularly to, to bring their sacrifices for the sins 
And so it's slain and the blood is shed on the brazen altar and they're seeing all this and there's the smell of blood and then there's washing in the, in the basically this, this brazen laver which represents baptism. Never can see the inside because there's no accessibility to me as a common dude. But the crazy thing is, is that there's a whole host of priests that are going through the motions because everything is there. All the furniture is in its place. All the clothes are just right. Everything looks amazing. Except there's no ark. The ark of God is not there. How many times can folks go through religious uh, exercises and and show up in order to think they're going to please God in some kind of way only to get there and everything have an amazing program and great music and an amazing facility but God not be anywhere near the place. I don't want that. I don't want anything to do with that. The first thing David did when he became king, he says, guys, look, put that last verse. It says, it is time to bring back the ark of God. No, no, you were there. You were there. It's time to bring back the ark of God for we neglected. Read those last two lines with me. Here we go. For we neglected it when? During the reign of Saul. Oh, my goodness. The principle is here. Listen. A man-centered system, religious or political, void of the presence of God and the glory of God can exist in perpetuity by merely going through the motions. And folk, I don't want anything to do with that. How many, of you, how many would say with me, I'm hungry for the presence of God. I need the Lord to show up. I need Him to show out in my life. Point number two, David prepared a place. Everybody say, David prepared. David prepared a place, a special tent. Look with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michelle, or Michael, not sure about the pronunciation because it's a woman. It's not a Michael man. It's a Michael woman, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Verse 18, when he had finished, everybody say finished, because this is important. I'll, I'll get to it in a minute. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, Mishael, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. And listen to what she says. She said in disgust, How distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person, any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, now listen, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your daddy, above your father. I love it, the little gouge in there that David said. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. In other words, he's basically saying, look, Wanch, I don't care what you think. I only care what God thinks. And I edited that anyway, so. Are y'all alive this morning? I woke you up a little bit. He says, verse 22, Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. 
Verse 22, I don't think it's an accident. This arbitrarily appeared. Listen. So Mishael, Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. Now, I don't think it's an accident or just arbitrary that the prophet of the school of prophets who completed the work of Samuel, 1 Samuel 1, 1 Samuel, or 1 and 2 Samuel, the two books, that told us in that moment that the daughter of Saul remained barren for the rest of her life. I, I, I just want to tell you that I think there's something here we need to stop and pause and learn from. And that is, if you don't understand it, you'd do best just to keep your mouth shut rather than criticize something that is the handiwork of God, that is the Spirit of the Lord moving and, and working and operating in something. Now, I, I, I don't think, don't misunderstand, I don't want to misrepresent the character of our Father. I don't believe our Heavenly Father is going about the business of, 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 of robbing from the womb uh, of a young woman simply because she shoots her mouth off about something the way Michael did. I don't think that's what's happening today. But let me just tell you this. I'm going to give you a principle that I believe does happen every time. And that is when you shoot your mouth off like Michael and you've got an attitude toward the presence of God and somebody else's response to it, let me tell you, you will never reproduce the spirit or the fruit of what God intended you to do in your life in anything spiritual because you'll have that bitterness and that barrenness in your life and it will come out of everything you do and you say. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We better be careful. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's on TV and you think it's crazy. Just keep your mouth shut. Get into the Word. Seek the Lord. Seek His face. Get understanding there. But make sure before you speak that you understand what you're talking about because God's not playing with this whole, this whole element, this whole realm of the things of the Spirit of God because too often folks out of ignorance just shoot their mouths off when they ought to just be quiet and go, God, I don't understand this. And if there's something to this that's real, then I ask you to show me and teach me. And if it's not, Lord, just let me dismiss it and move on. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Amen. Would to God that we would be able to operate like that? Because I think it's critical that we're careful not to be just mouthing off about things we don't understand, especially things of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to hear this this morning very quickly. There's a study in contrasts here. Because on Mount Gibeon, you have all the accoutrements of religiosity. Moses' tabernacle with the Mosaic covenant and the law. On Mount Zion, where David set up this special tent, there's no outer court, there's no furniture there. There's a holy place in all the furniture there at Gibeon because it's been moved from Shiloh over to Gibeon during David's administration. But they're still going through all the motions without the ark of God. Now, this is what I want you to see. On Zion, there's no holy place. Our furniture. Back at Gibeon, where all of the going through the motions and the religiosity are taking place, there's an empty, most holy place. There's no ark there. But guess what? Over here at Zion, where David basically goes over to Cabela's, or let's say he goes to Bass Pro Shop and he gets himself just basically a party tent. It's open on all four sides. And they set the, the ark of the Lord up in its place. And the crazy thing is, is that the tabernacle of Moses was all about exclusion. Nobody except the high priest could get in to where the ark of God was. And that was only once a year. And you better have a rope around your ankle in case you die doing it. Because they'd drag his dead carcass out if the bells and the pomegranates stopped tingling. Tink, tinkling. And what I want to say to you this morning is the exact opposite takes place into this tabernacle of David because it's a glimpse into the New Testament that is not just for the Jewish people only, but it's whosoever will may come. It's not just a, a tribe of Levitical priests 
who have to be born into the right family. But David literally turns this thing around where, oh my goodness, women actually come before the ark of the Lord into the presence of God. David designs new musical instruments. He writes songs that they sing. He appoints a whole group of musicians and singers and those who should, the Bible says, who should prophesy before the presence of the Lord. And he set them up in eight-hour shifts, 24-7, three eight-hour shifts a day. They would just sit in this tabernacle of David worshiping God, singing songs like, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all the stuff that David sang about, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, O God. There's no joy in the tabernacle of Moses, no instruments, no singing. It's just the smell and the stench of blood and dead things that never really do deal with the sin. And the beautiful thing about this is that when David sets up the tabernacle, he doesn't any longer offer sacrifices every day. He offers a massive party of all of these burnt offerings. And then he says it is finished the same way Jesus did when he hung on the cross and said it's all paid for. David finished the sacrifices and he said, guess what, boys? It's not about animals dying daily every day, but it's about you now offering spiritual sacrifices of joy and thanksgiving and praise and worship. And those are the sacrifices we offer in this New Testament thing called the Tabernacle of David. Guess what? Because David is Jesus and the Tabernacle is the church. And I'm looking at you this morning. Come on, somebody say amen. Are you getting anything out of this? Thirdly, this morning, my last point... All those things I basically just kind of went through right there for you. But I want you to see this. Lest you think for a second that I may be putting too much stock in this. I want you to hear from a later prophetic passage. Now he's called a minor prophet not because his message was any less important, but because his book was short. Okay. Uh, Difference in major and minor prophets aren't the size of their ministry, but it's just the, how much they prophesied, how, how long they went. Isaiah's got 66 chapters. He's called a major prophet. You know, Obadiah's one chapter. He's called a minor prophet. So Amos is among that 12, that group of 12 over there in the last part of your Old Testament. And Amos says this, Amos chapter 9, verses 11, 12. He says, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and will close up the breaches thereof. Now I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen. Everybody say, all the heathen. It says, which are called by my name. And somebody says, wait a minute, there ain't no Jew that would recognize a heathen called by the name of the Lord. Because they're unclean, they're dogs, they're Gentiles. But what I want you to realize is that God's heart from the beginning was for the whole of creation. It was for all the world. It was for all the nations. Israel was supposed to be a whole nation, a priestly nation. Every, all 12 tribes, priests to all the other nations of the world, but they turned down the invitation to God. God says, okay, I'll take one tribe out of your 12 and let them be a priest to you. And I'll just wait, and I'll wait for God to give me a family, and out of that family it will be birthed the son. And the family was David, and the son was Jesus when he came to do away with all of these types and pictures and shadows and finally give us the truth and the substance and the reality of what we've been looking for. Now, lest you think that like some dispensationalists do, well, this is just basically another way that national Israel is going to be restored. And I want to tell you this morning, it has absolutely nothing to do with that idea whatsoever. Every time the practices of free worship 
in the tabernacle of David were restored under any king in Judah, there was always revival. They never had revival after the kingdom split and Israel had no revival, only bad, evil kings. That's the ten tribes to the north. The two southern kingdoms of Judah and Benjamin had revival periodically. God would raise up a good king and they would turn to the Lord. And the scripture says they would walk in the ways of their father David. And when they would do that, God would restore. He would send refreshing. He would bring revival. He would reform the culture. He would drive back the enemy. He would open the heavens to bless their crops. And there would be seasons of great economic increase and, and, and uh, an injection of the blessing of God into the community. How many of you know we need that in America right now? We need a revival. We need to cry out to God the way the children of Israel did. Look, I want you to see this. Acts chapter 15. I'm give, let me give you a little bit of the backstory here quickly as I bring this message to a close this morning. God had used Peter on the day of Pentecost to stand up and proclaim and preach like a man possessed after he denied Jesus three times. And They go into the prayer room, the upper room for ten days. Holy Spirit of God falls. He walks out and preaches to a crowd. Three thousand get saved. It's the happy birthday of the church. Church is born. That literally is the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy that says a nation shall be born in a day. Dispensationalists try to tell you that's Israel in 1948. And I say hogwash. That's the church on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. The holy nation that was born. Born in one day. Because national Israel wasn't born in one day. It was a lot of backroom talking literally for decades. Uh, between Britain and the United States and all this stuff going on trying to get that whole thing into place. It was not anywhere near born in a day. Now I know May 11th, 1948, it came into existence. But the nation that was born in today is born in one day was the church, the holy nation. Peculiar people, chosen generation, a royal priesthood that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I know you're listening this morning. There's a little bit of detailed stuff that involves this. But what had happened after they had had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they go for two or three years and God's moving powerfully in the city of Jerusalem. And God decides it's time to kind of knock this thing out of this inward Jewish-only kind of perspective here. Peter happens to be visiting down on the coastal city of Joppa. And he's out on the roof. I've been to that very house myself. It's, it's still standing and somebody still lives in it. It's not just a museum. It's, it's a house that somebody owns. It was the, the house of Simon the Tanner. And Peter was on top of the roof and he has a vision. He's in a trance and God lets down a, a, a sheet that is filled with all manner of all kind of unclean animals and reptiles and creepy, nasty, crawling things. And the word of the Lord speaks to Peter when he's in a trance and he says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, Not so, Lord. Now think about the, the contradiction in taking, telling God, No, not so, Lord. And the Lord speaks to Peter and he says, no, 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 Peter, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, I can't do it. And so the Lord responds again and he tells him, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And of course, God's not talking about uh, the diet, but he's talking about how all the Jews have looked to all of the other nations of the world. All the other red and yellow, black and white who are a bunch of heathen Gentile dogs. And he, he says, there's someone at the door who's about to knock. Knock, knock, knock. Here comes Cornelius of the Italian band. Now, I don't know if it was Cornelius Reginelli or Cornelius Angeletti or Cornelius Marconi or, or which Italian band he was from or whether they played rock and roll or country or jazz band. I don't know. I'm just joking with you a little bit. Come on, wake up with me. Stay with me. I'm almost finished. 
But the whole point is, is that a Gentile shows up and he's hungry. He's a God-fearer. And Peter comes down and he shares the gospel with Cornelius and his whole band. And the Holy Spirit falls on that bunch of Gentiles the same way it did on the day of Pentecost for the Jews. And Peter scratches his head and goes, wait a minute. These guys didn't, aren't just saved. They got filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues just like we did just back a year or two ago. And he's like scratching his head going, but they're not faithful Jews. They're not living like Jews. They're Gentiles. And so Peter gets all excited and he's realizing that God has a bigger program than he ever realized, that God's actually rushing this, this fraternity and sorority party and he's sending out bids to folks that he would have never invited. Folk are getting invited to the party that Peter would have never had anything to do with. How many of you know that's true of us today? Aren't you thankful that God sent out a bid at some time in your life and invited you and wouldn't let you go until you showed up to the party and you got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit? I love that. The only thing is, is now this starts the biggest, most contentious, outright war in the New Testament church in Jerusalem. It's the only one there is. The church hasn't spread abroad yet. And there's infighting and everybody's trying to decide, do you have to become a good Jew before you can become a Christian? Peter says, I don't think so, guys, because the same way the Holy Spirit fell on us on the day of Pentecost, it also fell on these Gentiles. And then Paul comes along and he's got the same testimony. And they show up at a conference together trying to decide this. And Peter doesn't want to offend anybody, so he won't be seen with the Gentiles. He's only hanging out at the Jewish table. Paul gets up and rebukes Peter to his face. He says, how hypocritical and inconsistent of you. God used you to bring in Cornelius and the Italian band. And you know the Spirit of God fell on them and they didn't have to be Jews before they became Christians. And Peter, Paul rebuked Peter and Peter confessed. And you can read about it in Galatians chapter 1 when he confronted him. And James the Apostle, who is the lead elder, the senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem, stands up and he brings a complete conclusion to all of this warring about well, do we need to tell them to keep the law of Moses? Do they have to be circumcised in order to become Christians and be saved and be filled with the Holy Spirit? And they're arguing and all this infighting and political nonsense is going on. And James stands up and he reads this. Listen, and I'm closing. Acts chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. Afterward I will return and I will restore the fallen house of David and I will rebuild its ruins. He says, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord. I think I've skipped one. Let me go back to ESV. I'm sorry, guys, in the booth. I'll back up a minute. Let's get the ESV first. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David. Everybody say the tent of David. That has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now we'll get the NLT. Look at this. I love it. Afterward I will return and will restore the fallen house of David. And I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. And look at this. So that the rest of humanity, say those four words with me. The rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine the Lord has spoken. He has made these things known so long ago. How long ago was it? A thousand years ago when a young king who gives us the best picture of the coming Messiah, and his name is David, and he shows us a glimpse of spirit-filled life with freedom and worship. When everything about the tabernacle of Moses was about exclusion, the tabernacle of David was about inclusion. Come on. 
bring a repentant heart, humble yourself, and there's nothing you've done so wrong or so bad that God's mercy won't cover you. There's nothing so terrible, there's nothing so outrageous of a past or a circumstance you've faced that God's love won't embrace you. And so David basically, he, 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 he totally changes everything that has been protocol, that's been practiced in the tabernacle of Moses of an exclusivity and a fear and a terror and a God which there is no accessibility. And he throws open the, the veil and he invites women to come in. Yeah, can you believe that? He invites little children. There were no women going back into the holiest of all. There were no little children before the presence of God. Why is this a glimpse of the New Testament? Because Jesus says, allow the little children to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of God. Are you hearing this this morning? If David is a picture of Jesus, then his tabernacle, his tent, is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. It's the bride of Christ. It's spirit-filled, fruit of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, freedom in worship, singing psalms and hymns. David built an orchestra of 288 people. He set singers in courses 24-7, eight-hour shifts around the clock to just sit before the presence of God and sing, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And all those psalms that he had written when he was running from Saul and when God led him into places of, of great captivity and God broke him out and gave him freedom and liberty. When he was in need and God brought him provision. When he, when he was sick and, and God healed him. When he was tired and God refreshed him. All of those psalms that he wrote under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he gave them a copy and he says, Now sit in the presence of God and worship before the throne of the Lord of all the earth. And it's a picture of what we do in here. Because he showed him, he said, with hands uplifted, raise. He said, clap your hands, all you people, and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. With your mouth, sing the praises of God. With your hands, clap and play instruments and, and, and raise them in acts of submission to the greatness of God. And he didn't stop there. He said, use your whole body. Bow before the Lord. Exalt the Lord by bowing in His presence. Lie prost prostrate before Him. He said, I want you to even go further. I want you to dance before the Lord with all of your might. You know, I love it because David, when he brought back the ark of God, he was so excited and he didn't care what Saul's daughter, his wife, thought. He danced his clothes off. He was down to his underwear. Now, I don't know what that was in those times. And I know you're thankful that I'm not reenacting that part of the story. <laughs> Somebody said, praise the Lord. <laughs> but I just woke you up. I got your attention. And what I want you to see is that David was an untucked shirt kind of guy. He didn't care because he, he knew that there were a whole lot of folks that would never be able to afford the finery of what the tabernacle of Moses had. And he said, guys, it ain't never about what you're dressed in. It's about what's going on in your heart. Come on in here and have whole access to the presence of God. Put that chart up for me, Josh. I want you to see this. The old tabernacle had the Mosaic Covenant. The new tabernacle is a complete picture of the Messianic New Covenant. The old tabernacle had animal sacrifices and oblations every day. The new tabernacle, David sacrificed one time. And Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. His sacrifice is the once and... Everybody say once and for all. Old tabernacle, it was the Aaronic or Aaron, the sons of Levi. The new tabernacle, it's of the priesthood of Melchizedek, the Bible says. The, 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 this endless life, high priest. There is no access to the holiest of all in the old tabernacle because there's a veil that you can't get through. 
but there's complete access to the holiest of all in this tabernacle, this tent where David is. In the old tabernacle, if you put a cross between these two, let's just picture a cross sitting right there between the two because the cross changed everything. When the cross, when Jesus hung on the cross and said it is finished, the veil was rent. But you know what? It's not just a rent veil. Over here we have complete entrance and access by the blood of Jesus Christ. Everybody say the new and living way. Come on. And over here in the old tabernacle, it's a work that's never finished. There's always blood being shed. There's another sin that you didn't cover for. You've got to go back. There's always something else because you missed it again today and you've got to go offer another sacrifice. I want you to see this. In the new tabernacle, it is a complete, everybody say a finished work. I love it. Go ahead and click. Give me the rather part and we'll be, is that it? There we go. Old tabernacle, they're carrying on an old order. Priests that are carrying on an old order. But in the new tabernacle, the Bible says there was a great company of priests that believed and became part of this whole thing. They come to the faith. The old tabernacle is for the Jewish nation and the Gentile proselytes only. But this one is for all nations, for Jews and Gentiles. Come on, everybody say everybody. Say whosoever will may come. Old tabernacle, the glory is gone. It's departed. There's no more ark. This new tabernacle, the glory of the Lord is settled down right here among us. His presence is here. Jesus says this is the house that, the house that is left desolate. But this one, his church is his house. Hello, bride of Christ. Hello, Zion. Hello, people of God. Come on, I'm looking at you this morning. Are you hearing me today? All right. This one, the cross was rejected. The new tabernacle, the cross is accepted. This is a picture of Sinai. Don't approach. This one is a picture of Zion. Complete access. No matter where you are, what you've done, no matter how, what a low-down, no-good outlaw in your family you are, I want you to know this morning you're in the right place because Jesus will receive you if you'll come in humility to Him and brokenness. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Hallelujah. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, thank you for this.